Hey there, all you serial killer fanatics. I'm Amanda. And I am Corey. Welcome back to Serial Killer Tuesday. Here at SKT, we talk about the nitty-gritty of all things serial killers. We're just two best friends who love to talk about true crime and wanted to provide you, our new best friend, a place to talk about it too. New episodes air every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Each month, we will discuss the depravity of a new serial killer with weekly deep dives into their lives. Stop by for the stories. Stay for the fun. I'm a little grouchy today, so please excuse my non-festive voice. (laughs) But I do have a little fact for all of you. Following the two or more murderers definition, there were 189 serial killers in 1987. According to the three or more murderers definition, the number stood at 128. So that's some pretty scary serial killer trivia for your next trivia day at the bar or whatever. Whatever you people are doing with these facts that we're giving you. Right. If you're ever on Jeopardy, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now you know. Scary Jeopardy, not regular Jeopardy. No, no, no. Alex Trebek would not talk about this stuff. Mm Mm-mm. Don't worry. We're back. We're back on topic. (laughs) Well, guys, welcome to a new month. Happy April, friends. Woohoo. Can you believe this is our second Serial Killer Tuesday series? No. I know. I mean, I couldn't even believe it if I was talking right now. I know. It's our fifth episode of Serial Killer Tuesday. We're amazing. I know. So thank you guys to everybody who's been listening each week. We love you guys. So this month we picked a new serial killer and we're going to be discussing, drumroll please. Oh good. Richard (laughs) David Falco. But you guys probably know him as David Berkowitz. He's a crazy, crazy person. So... David Berkowitz is an American serial killer who murdered six people in New York City between 1976 and 1977. He also wounded about the same amount. This sent the city into a panic and unleashed one of the biggest manhunts in New York's history. David Berkowitz was arrested on August 10, 1977, just 11 days after his last murder. David is serving six consecutive life sentences at the Maximum Security Shangunk Correctional Facility in Wallkill, New York. So before we can discuss the crime David is convicted of, we have to discuss who David was as a person. Let's go back to 1953. Richard David Falco was born June 1, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. He was born to Elizabeth Broder and Joseph Kleinman. At the time David was born, Betty was married to Tony Flacco, and the couple already had one daughter together. When Betty fell pregnant, she knew it was a man named Joseph's. Joseph, however, was married to another woman, and he told Betty to get rid of the baby. She went on to give birth to a healthy baby boy and listed her husband as the father. Betty placed her son for adoption, and just days after his birth, he was adopted to a nice couple named Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz. 
After the adoption, Richard's name was changed to David Richard Berkowitz. Little did his parents know, his name would go on to strike fear in those who heard it. David was troubled from the beginning. He showed signs of having above-average intelligence, but lost focus easily and showed an immense interest in larceny and pyromania. Maybe he had ADHD and no one knew. In Probably. Other wor- yeah. In other words, he liked to steal and set fires. He was known throughout his neighborhood as a bully. In fact, his family actually contacted a psychotherapist due to his behavior. His behavior was never noted on his school records, though. He would later leave notes that were riddled with oddities, but his intelligence could not be ignored. His vernacular and vocabulary were that of someone very well educated. In 1967, when David was 14, Pearl died from breast cancer. Oh, that's sad. Leaving David with only his father. The death of his mother made his already strained relationship with his father very much worse. When Nathan remarried, David could not hide his disdain for his new stepmother. David's erratic behavior further worsened when his father and new stepmother moved to Florida without him after David graduated from high school. Um, He's an adult. Like, I don't know. It's 1970. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why you're mad about it. He was like, what about me, mom and dad? (laughs) You don't love me? (laughs) I mean, sorry. I mean, maybe David, maybe he had abandonment issues, and maybe I'm just being like... I mean, jerk. maybe he did, but also, he was a grown-ass man. Like, right. In the 70s, you didn't live with your parents after 18. Well, and <laughs> like, who's stopping not- you from moving to Florida with them? Yeah, you could have moved. Lived next door. I don't know. Right? Jeez, kids. Kids. David graduated from high school in 1971, and then he went on to join the Army. That seems to be like a common theme in serial killers. Mm -hmm. During his time in the military, he became an excellent marksman. Uh, I'm going to have to say that the next few stories prove that incorrect. He was active in the military until 1974, serving both in the U.S. and as well as South Korea. He was honorably discharged in 1974. David decided that he wanted to locate his birth mother and even began to explore other religions, mainly Christianity. David finally met his birth mother, Betty, and she told him all about his illegitimate birth and the recent death of his birth father. That's got to be traumatizing. Mm -hmm. This fact left David distraught. A forensic anthropologist named Elliot, a forensic anthropologist named Elliot Layton would later described David's discovery of his birth as the primary crisis in his life that resulted in a shattered sense of identity. David stopped talking to his birth mother, but remained in contact with his half-sister, Rosalyn. Rosalyn's a really cute show on Hulu, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Aww. I know. I really liked it. It's like Romeo and Juliet. Anyway. David decided to give Bronx Community College the old college try in 1975, but only attended for one year before his arrest. He also worked for the co-op taxi company for a short time. David went on to hold several jobs after leaving the Army, but was working for the United States Postal Service at the time of his arrest. 
He botched his first murder attempt using a knife. Then he switched to a handgun and began his lengthy crime spree throughout the New York boroughs of the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens, seeking out young female victims. He was most attracted to white women with long, dark, wavy hair. All of his crime scenes involved two victims. He most famously committed some of his attacks while women sat with their boyfriends in parked cars. David exhibited an enduring enjoyment of his activities, often returning to the scene of the crime. Do you think that he was attracted to white women with long, dark, wavy hair because of his birth mom or because of his uh, adoptive mom? Probably both. You think? Mm-hmm. Or because of his stepmom and he was just killing her over and over again? Um, I don't know. I kind of think that it was more of his birth felt- mom. Yeah, and he felt cheated by the women mm. in his life. Not that Pearl had control over it, but right. Pearl left. His birth mom his left. His birth mom left. And I think that he was just angry that, you know, women were always leaving him. Mm. That could be. I just wonder, because, yeah. you know, they say, I mean, serial killers kill someone over and over again um, mm-hmm. because of something that happened to them. So I was just wondering if the girls look similar to anyone in his his life. The first attack that David claimed he committed was on Christmas Eve, 1975, when he used a hunting knife to stab two women in Co-op City. The first alleged victim was a Hispanic woman that was never identified by the police. The second was a 15-year-old girl named Michelle Foreman. She was a sophomore at Truman High School. She was stabbed six times on a bridge near the Dreiser Loop. Her injuries were serious enough for her to be in the hospital for a week. However, David was not a suspect in these crimes, and he moved to an apartment in Yonkers. It's always such a silly word, and it gives me the giggles every time I say it. (laughs) Yonkers. Yes. Makes me think of knockers. Then I think of young Frankenstein. So now we're in July. Um. July 29th, 1976, in fact, which is July 29th. I know, a year before I was born. That's so crazy. That's Corey's birth week, guys. It was. So, but however, that day was a day of horror for two unsuspecting women. Now I will never think of my birthday any other way. No one, I'm sure it was horror for your mother too a year later <laughs> i mean probably but um bum but um no one could have known that these two attacks were due to a serial killer making his debut donna lori was an 18 year old brunette she was hanging out with her 19 year old friend jody valente the best friends were just sitting talking in jody's car near the entrance of donna's apartment building in the bronx now in the 1970s, we didn't have cell phones, um, and most people sat in their cars and talked to their friends or wrote them letters or things like that because there was no text messaging. or And you had to call your friends on your house line and hope that no one else was calling, too. So that's why they were sitting in their car. But don't text me if you know me in real life because I won't respond. And that's only because she has terrible cell service. I hate text messaging. I'm the worst. Like, just I like call text me. messaging. I know you I don't do. like calling. I, don't, I know. I, don't I call you call. all the time. 
I know. Please don't call me. And I'm I don't like, want to talk on the phone. What are you doing? <laughs> I don't like it. I know. Which is strange because I'm a Gen X and we didn't have that until like the 90s. So it's confusing to me why I've adapted so well to text messaging. I know. And I'm the also, opposite. It could be because um, of the environment we worked in for a hot second and everything should be documented. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I wish you guys could know. Damn it. Do I wish you guys could understand right? that. Documentation is key. <laughs> yes. Just remember that. Remember. Write everything down. You should always have proof so, of everything. <laughs> yeah. Proof of everything. So Donna's parents were coming home from a night out and they stopped by the girl's car and told Donna that because of the dangerous hour, one o'clock in the morning, she needed to come inside. So she told her parents that she'd be coming right up. After her parents had gone inside, Donna noticed a strange man standing along the passenger side of her best friend's ride. No, it was trying to holler at me. It was her best friend's car. She said, who is this guy and what does he want? Her question would never be answered, however. The man pulled out a 44 caliber bulldog handgun from a paper bag, swatted down, and fired into the car at least five times. Donna was shot in the neck and died immediately. Jody was shot in the thigh and had leaned on the horn of the car, even while the man continued to fire shots, even though the gun was empty. Jody got out of the car and was screaming for help. Donna's father heard the commotion and ran down from the apartment. He was just in his pajamas and didn't have shoes on. He raced to the hospital, hoping that they could save his precious daughter, Donna. Jody survived her injury and gave a description to the police. She said that she hadn't recognized her killer, but that he was a white man in his 30s with fair complexion. She said that he was about 5 foot 8 inches tall and looked like he weighed approximately 200 pounds. She said that he had dark, curly hair, and it was cut in a modern style. That description was repeated by Donna's father, who said that he saw a similar-looking man sitting in a yellow compact car that was parked nearby. Neighbors also reported to the police that they had seen an unfamiliar yellow car cruising through the neighborhood for hours before the shooting occurred. Police, however, could find no motive for the attack. They finally theorized it might have been either a mob attack or mistaken victims or a lone psycho. <laughs> October 23rd, 1976, three months after the attack on Jody and murder of Donna, 20-year-old Carl Denaro was out at a bar in Queens drinking beer with his friends. In a few days, he was entering the Air Force for at least four years, and he wanted to have a good time with his friends. Among the people at the party was a girl named Rosemary Keenan, who he knew from college. When the party broke up a little after 2.30 a.m., Carl drove Rosemary home. The couple parked near her house and sat in the car talking. Suddenly, a man appeared at the passenger side of the car. He drew a gun and fired five times into the car, wounding Carl in the head. A terrified Rosemary who had only been superficially wounded by the broken window glass, drove the car back to the bar and friends rushed Carl to the hospital. There, the surgeons replaced part of his damaged skull with a metal plate. His injuries would haunt him for the rest of his life. 
police determined that the bullets that were embedded in Rosemary's car were of a 44 caliber weapon, but they were so deformed that the police thought it would be unlikely that they could ever be linked to a particular weapon. Because Carl had shoulder length hair, the police speculated that the shooter had mistaken him for a woman, which would make sense. Rosemary's father was a 20 year veteran detective with the New York police department. So he was able to get this to be a, like to move it into a big investigation. However, they didn't seem to be a lot of motive, so the police made very little progress. Many of the details of the shooting were very similar to the details of the Donna Jody shooting, but the police did not initially link them together, partly because the shooting occurred in different boroughs and were being investigated by different police precincts, which sucks because um, different police precincts back then really didn't have a way to communicate with each other too much, despite like driving down there or calling. Correct. So you never knew not. what one was working on. Yep. So that's why a lot of the time things went unlinked for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't com- they didn't have a way to communicate. Mm-mm. You, know, you they didn't, didn't have email back then or, you know, database or, like or a, anything like that. Yeah, like a big crime database or anything like that. They had crime databases in their own counties or in their own states. But New York is such a diverse state with so many precincts, precincts within just within New York city. There's no, Mm -hmm. it's not just like one police department that covers the whole area. Right. So that's kind of, that's kind of scary. It is. It's, I think it's more scary because so many crimes went unlinked for so long. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting to go back and look at all of them to Mm -hmm. see like what was missed and what Mm -hmm. could be linked now. Mm hmm. But Andrew Berkowitz is an interesting fella. He is. But that's where we're going to end today's episode, guys. So that was our first episode of The Son of Sam, David Berkowitz. Make sure that you tune in next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time for episode two. We'll be learning more about David's victims. And we might be getting into all of the letters that he sent to the police and the media. So thank you all for listening to Serial Killer Tuesday. We hope that you have a great day wherever you are. Sorry, I'm so grouchy today. So until next time, podcastians, have the day you deserve. (laughs) 